Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is An Industry Outsider Shows What's Possible When Building a Financial Planning Firm from the Ground Up. It's a conversation with Anders Jones, CEO and co-founder of Facet Wealth. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make the series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or are simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or series widely. If there's one thing that the pandemic taught us, it's this. Many clients are okay with not having face-to-face interaction with their advisors. In fact, there are few firms that can provide proof of concept that the remote model works and does so very well. And it took a 30-something CEO who hailed from Silicon Valley to make us pay more attention. Because when the pandemic hit, his firm already had a working model in which clients interacted remotely with their advisors. And in 2020, while the world was shut down, this firm experienced 4x growth. The firm is Facet Wealth, founded by Anders Jones, a wealth management industry outsider who back in 2015 recognize an opportunity to serve clients who no longer fit the big firm mold. It was a scenario propelled by the DOL fiduciary rule requirement that financial advisors act in the best interests of their clients, yet in a commission-based structure, it became more difficult. So in 2016, Anders took a ground-up approach and developed a fixed-fee-based independent firm, one that focused on the untapped market of mass-affluent clients, many of which fell outside of the asset minimum big firms require. Facet got its start by purchasing those clients who lost their advisor relationships and were too small for the account minimums at big firms, a concept that provided a foundation for the nascent firm. Yet it was his mother's vision that Anders credits as a profound lesson for him. Her career was devoted to making 401k retirement plans more accessible for everyday people, first at Fidelity and later at T. Rowe Price. In her words, helping millions of Americans save for retirement. Anders sees Facet as his mission to carry on where his mother left off by helping people achieve financial wellness. To do that, Anders sought out to deliver completely unconflicted advice, free of the ties that bind fees to assets. Instead, Facet charges a flat annual fee, designed to be reflective of the services being provided. But how does a firm with a fixed subscription model make money? That's where Anders' background shines. His background in fintech, not wealth management, allowed him to take a different approach with technology that's designed not to replace advisors, but to make them more efficient and create scale. And it seems to be working. Aside from outstanding growth, the firm has raised more than $60 million in venture capital 
with backing from Warburg Pincus. Educated at Stanford with an MBA from Wharton, Anders takes a unique approach to business, no doubt gleaned from a dozen years as an early stage investor in emerging tech markets as a founding partner at Argyle Ventures and prior to that with ad tech firm LiveRamp. In this episode, Anders shares his story with Lewis, providing a unique entrepreneurial perspective that's both philosophical and analytical. He digs into what drives the success of Facet's model and how it and others like it serve as a template for financial planning firms of the future. So let's get to it. Anders, thanks so much for joining us today. Lewis, thanks for having me. Very good. So let's go back to the beginning. You founded Facet Wealth in 2016, but not as an advisor, like many of our guests. Can you walk us through your background and how you came to found this company? Yeah, absolutely. My two-minute history is I grew up in Boston, went to Stanford undergrad, and graduated in 2009, which, with the exception of probably the last year, was arguably the worst year to graduate in recent memory. 75% of my class didn't have a job when we graduated, which was uh, pretty extraordinary. You're sitting there in Silicon Valley and no jobs to be had. Well, what do you do? You uh, you know, you throw in with some folks and you just start up. So I was on the, the early team of a company that ultimately became LiveRamp, which is now a publicly traded company in the advertising technology space. And I don't know if you know what retargeting is, but if you've ever been shopping online and the thing that you're looking at follows you around for the next two weeks, we did a version of that and had a had a hand in sort of making that a reality on the internet. So I apologize to you and, and all of your listeners for that. But um, you know, after I left LiveRamp in 2013, I started doing some venture investing, early stage tech investing. Got very interested in what was going on in fintech. This was right around the time when some of the first robo advisors were getting a lot of attention and a lot of funding. So the wealth fronts, the betterments, the personal capitals of the world. And then really started thinking about, okay, is there an opportunity to build a business in the consumer fintech space? And for us, the light bulb really went off in 2015 when the DOL rule was being discussed and ultimately didn't pass. And from an outsider's standpoint, looking at the pushback that the industry lobby was giving, which was in the if you pass this rule, you're going to end up with 8 million households that either that will lose their advisor relationship because their advisor can't afford to both service them and act in their best interests at the same time. That was just crazy. To me, that was like the industry very publicly admitting that they were, for lack of a better phrase, screwing 8 million of their clients. And that just seemed like a huge opportunity to rethink what financial planning really means both from a sort of what's the value that the client is getting and also what's the service that we're actually delivering and what's the cost structure associated with it. And so all of those things went into the creation of Facet. That's amazing. And it's very different than others who have started RIAs because it seems like you saw an opportunity just like any innovative founder does, but without any sort of assets under management or even seemingly relevant industry experience, you decided to launch Facet. So I'm curious, what was it about the wealth management space in particular, aside from the 8 million or so potentially unserviced households that led you to this sector versus something in advertising or something in a different segment of the business world? 
Yeah, I think the business opportunity was really clear. So that was obviously a big draw. I think after spending the first part of my career in the ad tech world, you start to, or at least I started to think about doing something more meaningful from a career standpoint. I'm thinking about what's a service that we can create that actually helps people. And I'm very passionate about the idea that having a good financial life or having your financial life in good order actually helps you live a much better life in general. Financial planning and financial wellness is as essential of a service as as physical health or as medical care. And I think there's a lot of studies that are continuing to sort of back that up with empirical data. And I think that by and large, most advisors get into the market for that reason. It's really a great way to help people. And then I also have a personal connection to the industry. My mother worked at Fidelity for a very long time, for most of her career, and really helped build their retirement business. And so there's a little bit of a legacy play here too, where I'm kind of joining the family business. And one of the things that she always says that she's most proud of in her career is she helped millions of Americans save for retirement. And I, I sort of view Facet's approach as, as sort of the next iteration of that, which is helping millions of Americans live a better financial life and by extension, a better life in general now. Amazing. You, you just answered my next question, which was about the why for Facet Wealth. So let's pivot then to what's the value proposition? You've mentioned a little bit of the problem that Facet's looking to solve, but if you were pitching this to a potential new employee or to a client, what would that sound like? Yeah, I think at the highest level, we're rebuilding financial planning the way that it should be. And this goes back to, again, the industry outsider approach where we looked at everything from a purely first principle standpoint. And we said, okay, what is the value that's being pitched to clients today? And does that actually match up with what they're getting or the kind of value that they actually need? And the answer by and large was no. So with that sort of as the wrapper, what do we do? Well, we exist for people who have too much nuance and complexity in their financial life for a purely digital DIY solution like a robo-advisor or a website to really be meaningful and help them. But at the same time, don't have the asset level to be interesting to a traditional advisor. So I mentioned the 8 million households that that were sort of surfaced by the, the DOL rule pushback. There's actually about 38 million households out there that fall into this category. And they're not, it's not that they don't have assets. It's not that they don't have money. There's, they represent about $44 trillion of assets, but they're primarily tied up in either uh, residential real estate or in some sort of retirement account. Two things that most advisors can't charge fees on. So they're largely overlooked. So for us, our pitch to them is, first of all, we're going to look at every aspect of your financial life. So sure, we'll talk about retirement and asset management, which seem to be the two primary value props that most of the industry uses. But really, we want to dig into every aspect of your financial life. Our tagline is, every decision is a financial decision. So we help people think about starting families. We help people think about changing jobs. We have clients that we help save for a two-week beach vacation. It's everything that your life touches and our view is that we can help you make better decisions around all of this. The next piece is you work with a dedicated CFP. So you're working with the highest certification in the industry. You're working with a dedicated person. It's not a call center. You're building a relationship with someone over time. And then lastly, and I think this is a super important one, and we could probably spend the whole podcast talking about this, but we charge a flat annual fee. 
So the way that we charge is not at all tied to how much money you have. It is purely designed to be reflective of the services that we're providing to you. And I'm very, very passionate about this idea of you have to align incentives so that we can be a completely unconflicted and really trusted resource to help guide our clients through their financial life decisions as opposed to have some sort of weird incentive on the back end that creates a conflict of interest. So those are the core pillars of what we do. And we found that that really resonates with clients. And how is it that you can deliver services to a lower end and presumably less profitable segment of the market and still turn a profit yourselves? So let me take a step back and say that we are, I guess, technically an RIA and that we are regulated by the SEC as such. But at our core, we're a technology company. And when we started Facet, we said we see an opportunity to build a proprietary tech platform that basically makes our advisors way more efficient. So the average advisor today works with like 75 clients. Ours work with 250. And the way that we do that is we, the average advisor today is spending about three hours of prep and wrap up time for every hour of client facing time. I think if you talk to any independent that you have worked with, they would say that much of that prep and wrap up is very low value add. They're going into a bunch of different systems. They're pulling a bunch of data together and it's not like true financial planning. It's just sort of like administrative stuff. So the good news is technology is very well equipped to automate all of that away. And that's what we've done. So our advisors spend a lot less time focused on prep and wrap up and really maximize the client facing time. So we've driven incredible efficiencies from a cost standpoint, and we're able to pass the cost savings onto onto our clients. So to give you context, our average client pays us about $2,600 a year. I think if you were to go to a traditional firm, they'd probably be looking at closer to six or $7,000 a year if that advisor would even work with them. Yeah, it's really interesting. You're really democratizing financial advice. And I, I love the mission that regardless of how much investable you have, that if you're willing to pay something for it, you can get access to a highly credentialed CFP and a digitally enabled. So would you describe the investment approach? Is it a robo type offering or do you have a group of portfolio managers that are picking individual securities or funds for clients? As a starting point, one thing to know is that we only manage money for 50% of our clients. So I think this is another thing that really differentiates us is that you don't have to manage money with us in order to work with us. In fact, we work with a lot of clients who are actually negative net worth. They might have huge student loan debts. Like a young lawyer is is sort of a perfect example of someone who they don't really have any assets saved up. They have a lot of student loans. They're making a good salary so they can pay our fee, but and they definitely need financial help but they're sort of shut out from existing options. So that's just, I think, an important nuance of our business. In terms of what we put our clients in, it's very simple. It's We have seven model portfolios. They're all low-cost ETFs, focus on globally diversified, passive, low-cost index funds. And our view is that for the vast majority of our clients, that's what they need. We have never said we're going to try and add alpha based on our investment choices, or nor should you expect us to. And if anyone's pitching you on that, you should probably run the other way. Yeah, that makes good sense. And where's Facet now as far as number of employees, number of CFPs or advisors, AUM, and any sort of metric that might paint a picture for the audience as to the scale of Facet? Yeah, so we are about 300 employees total right now. 
I want to say we're about 130 of them are CFPs. So I think by any measure, we're one of the larger CFP teams in the country. In terms of AUM, I actually couldn't really tell you. I think we're somewhere between seven and 800 million. It's not a meaningful metric for us. It's not how we measure success. We think about our you know, number of clients we have and then our annual recurring revenue. And so we're just shy of 10,000 clients at this point. So, and that's grown. I think we started 2020 with about 1,500 clients and we quadrupled last year and we're on track to triple again this year. So from a growth standpoint, we're really kind of blowing the bar doors off. I think our offering more than most during the pandemic really resonated with my clients and prospects. The clients that you're bringing onto the firm, are they clients that you're taking away from other wealth managers, say more of like the traditional full service firms, or is it mostly DIYers or just people who for the first time are coming into some sort of wealth? It's mostly first timers. So 75% of our clients have never worked with a financial advisor or in financial services before. And so kind of going back to our original thesis of there's a huge market out here that needs help with very few good options. That's who we're servicing and we're seeing it sort of empirically through the clients and prospects that we're getting. Definitely. I want to make a brief pivot to some of what I think are the the more unique aspects of your business model. And you've highlighted some of them. First, the idea of working with smaller clients. And then the second component is the subscription fee. So let's start with the types of clients you're working with. Just reading the headlines, it seems like there is a race for traditional Wall Street institutions, be it Goldman or Morgan Stanley or B of A Merrill, to go after this retail market. But I think it sounds like Facet was kind of there almost ahead of those organizations. So as those types of firms bolster what they're doing on the retail side, does it concern you? And how do you think you're going to differentiate versus those institutions going forward? I think the two points you want to cover are very interlinked in that, as far as I can tell, any of the major firms that are going after the sort of mass affluent market or overlapping a bit with our client base, they're still very much asset-based models. And so again, you go back to at least half of our client base would not be able to work with those firms. And the industry's really kind of gotten itself in a bit of a pickle because the asset-based model is so lucrative and it allows advisors to charge these extraordinary economic rents and consumers don't really understand how they're paying or what they're paying for. And, you know, in order to change it to a more consumer centric model, which would also open up a bigger market, you'd have to cannibalize the existing set of industry revenue streams. And from you know everything I can tell, having been part of this industry for the last six years, it doesn't seem like there's appetite to do that. And even if you look at some of the newer sort of millennium or Gen Z focused offerings that are out there from some of the larger incumbents, nothing is really changing other than just like a slick website and different marketing messaging. But the fundamental economics underlying everything and the fundamental business model aren't changing. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying I'm not too worried about it. Right. And, and I would also add, it's not just asset-based, but also probably more product-focused, whether it's cross-selling yeah. banking products or securities-backed loans. And just to be clear, Facet doesn't do any sort of its own 
asset custody or product manufacturing. And assets, I would assume, are custodied with a combination of Schwab, Fidelity, Pershing, et cetera. Yeah, it's Schwab, Fidelity, and Apex are our three. And yeah, we don't do any sort of product sales. The one asterisk on that is that we do view a great customer experience as helping clients implement aspects of their financial plan. For example, trust in estate is a big one where a lot of advisors say, hey, you need an estate plan. And then it's kind of on you to go off and find an estate attorney and put all that into place. And then they charge a few thousand dollars and that's that. We will facilitate that. We actually have a whole group of folks that do these sort of, we call them ancillary services. So you can pay us more money and we will go and and do your estate plan for you. I view that as a value-added service, not as a, a product sale. And again, it's you're paying for a service that you know exactly what you're paying for and exactly what you're getting. We do help our clients with insurance needs from time to time. And that's one that's really interesting because it's actually illegal to not take a commission. And so when that happens, what we do is we turn around and donate those commissions to financial literacy programs. So to the extent that there's any sort of money changing hands as part of our the implementation services, we are very upfront about that and we give it away. That's one of the cooler things I've, I've ever heard. Great answer. And I recall, I think the first time you and I had met was under the pretense of Facet was looking to purchase the, say, bottom the bottom half, the bottom quarter, the bottom 10th of an advisor's book of business. I don't know if that strategy is still in force, but I thought it was fascinating. Can you elaborate on how that worked? It looked great on paper. In reality, it was much harder to execute. So the thesis was going back to the origin story around the DOL rule and 8 million households losing their advisor relationship. When we first got going, we said, well, okay, there's pretty clearly 8 million clients that advisors actually probably don't really want to service. So we should just go and figure out how we, quote unquote, buy those clients. And we walked into the market. And if you look, again, from an outsider standpoint, it's sort of a lot of the headlines. And I'm sure you are right in the thick of all this in your day to day. But it seems to the layman like there is a very active M&A market in the advisor space, which is true. And so we thought, okay, we can go into a very liquid market and basically help sort of facilitate transactions. Someone, advisors are selling their practice and the buyer probably only wants the high net worth, the million dollar plus clients. And we can sort of carve out the other set of clients and transition over to facet. It felt like, like a win-win. The thing that we didn't really realize is that some of these transactions take five years to sort of scope and for the advisors to get comfortable with it and, and that sort of thing. And so to have a startup come in and kind of late stage in the deal, say, hey, we want to buy 200 of your clients that didn't really work in practice. So I still in the back of my mind think that there's an opportunity there at some point, and probably as the market consolidates more and more, there might continue to be an opportunity there. But the sort of flip side of all of that is that we started seeing just really strong organic growth in our own business, and literally just people come to our website and signing up. And so uh, for us, we said, okay, there's a very clear signal here that we should double down on this on sort of our own demand gen channel as opposed to um, trying to do inorganic growth. So we tried it for a couple of years and then we put that one to bed. I thought it was very unique, but as any business person can attest to, just because it's a good idea, it doesn't mean it's a good idea in practice. Clearly everything else you're doing has been working quite well. So I've read about Facet for a while, but I think most of the press has been around the 
all of the, the capital that's been raised. Most recently, I believe you raised approximately $60 million from private equity titan Warburg Pincus. Can you talk a little bit about that and just your viewpoint on taking capital? And I'm curious too, because you come from the Silicon Valley mindset, probably more venture capital rather than some of the later stage private equity that we see chasing the RIA market today. Yeah, for sure. So I think more than anything else, the fact that we've raised so much money and we will raise more money is really an indication of the company that we're trying to build. So this is not a lifestyle RIA. I mean, we're trying to build a a significant, meaningful, generational business. We talk about internally as the next great financial services company. We think about who is the last real standalone, quote unquote, startup that achieved that status is probably Fidelity. And so there's a Fidelity size opportunity out there to build a, a company focused on this market with this need. And that's really what we're gunning for. And if we didn't see that enormous opportunity ahead of us, we wouldn't have raised that much money. That's where we are in the philosophy behind why we're building the company the way that we are. In terms of going with Warburg instead of traditional venture capital, that's definitely was a non-obvious choice for us. And we'd raised like a $4 million seed round, and that was from more traditional kind of valley seed investors, uh, Slow Ventures, which is they've been in some really awesome technology companies over the last few years. They led our seed round. And we weren't really in fundraising mode. We were probably nine or so months away from raising a Series A and got introduced to Warburg through a bank, through Silicon Valley Bank, and had a conversation with the team over there. And they basically said, look, we have this checklist of what we think the future of wealth management for the mass affluent market is going to be. And they have a pretty informed view on that. They were first money into uh, the mutual fund store, and then that rolled into financial engines. And then they just took a position in in Edelman, the the new Edelman engines uh, combo. So they have a long history of investing in in that very specific part of the market. And they said, look, we have 10 items on this checklist, and you guys hit 10 out of 10. So it's a bit of an unnatural investment for us because you're so early stage. I think at that point, we had like $200,000 of revenue. But we would really like to lean in and see if we can be partners. And so that was in 2018. And we got a deal done. And then they subsequently did our Series B as well. And they've been amazing partners. Couldn't ask for a better team to really help us in the growth phase that we've been in. And as we're you know, gearing up to sort of you know, enter that, that hyperscale mode, right, because we're already in it, sort of you know, having them as around the board table and having them as sounding boards has been really awesome. It sounds that way. And a lot of advisors grapple with either in the face of a transition, selling a portion of their practice to unlock liquidity, or at some point in their journey as an independent wealth manager, taking chips off the table, or a course toward the end before retirement, wanting to monetize the practice and monetizing one's life work. But the holdup is oftentimes feeling like you're selling your upside and capping your earning potential in the future. What would you say to folks like that? And how would you? counsel, a prospective advisor who's either thinking about private equity or an external investor, or maybe is is scared off by it for whatever reason? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's important to just kind of underscore that like Facet is a different DNA than a traditional advisor. Like we're sort of, we started this company to build like a massive brand with millions of clients and billions of dollars of revenue. So we're sort of in a position where we have to go down the path that we're on if we want to achieve that goal. But stepping back from that, I think that 
the real question that anyone who's thinking about taking outside capital has to ask is, what's my end goal? The real reason to take outside capital is to either get liquidity and start kind of phasing out, in which case, yeah, you might be giving up upside, but money in the bank today is worth a lot. And especially in this market environment right now, which I know we've been saying for the last five years, the market has never been hotter, but at some point it will cool down. Like it's definitely a seller's market. And so if you're thinking about taking chips off the table, then you know there's no better time now to do it. Or the other reason you take capital is to accelerate growth. And I think if that's the position that you're in, then you have to have a very clear understanding of how you're going to deploy that capital and how you're going to get a positive return on those dollars. Taking capital is always expensive, right? You're giving up ownership, you're getting diluted, and you have to make sure that that you have a value creation machine where for every dollar that you invest in growth, you're getting more than a dollar back over the long run. And so I think if you don't have a clear view of that, then I would say it's probably best to not take capital. But again, every situation is very unique and specific. It's really good advice because, yeah, I would agree. The allure of the wealth management industry to external investors is its profitability and its scalability and the operating leverage. But I would agree with you guys kind of took the opposite. It's we're going to build a huge company and then the revenue is going to follow. And then we're going to build an even bigger company. And then we're going to pour gasoline on the fire and grow this thing even bigger. So it is a bit of a different playbook. But I completely agree with you. If you don't have a clear vision for what you're going to use the capital for and why an external investor is going to help you above and beyond just the check, because anyone can write a check, then you're probably better off just taking a bank loan or just writing it out and keeping full control of your company. Totally. So I believe part of Facet's business is targeted at major employers. I guess kind of dub it the, the workplace wealth segment that some of the traditional wirehouses call it. Can you explain that segment of the business and what's the pitch at the employer level? Yeah, I would call this a nascent part of our business. As I start thinking out over the next couple of years, I get really excited about this market. But I wouldn't say that we have, I'd say we're playing around with a lot of different models here. But I don't know that we've we've sort of landed on the one sort of scalable offering or two or three scalable offerings that we're going to really invest in. But in general, I would say that financial wellness for employees is a huge focus point for companies right now. And there's been this evolution of you know the workplace providing a pension and sponsoring the 401k plan. And now there's the sort of next iteration of that is around, okay, how do we make sure that our employees actually have healthy financial lives? And I think that most solutions out there are fairly lacking. I mean, you know, you can go on, there's like the one company that's offering the sort of like, here's your financial wellness score. It's like, you're 64. It's like, okay, great. What do I do with that? So the tech first solutions, I don't know that they particularly get to the need of what both companies and employees are, are looking for. And at the same time, the traditional advisor model has worked really well for the C-suite, but it doesn't scale to the uh, the larger employee population. So I think that there's a huge opportunity there. And I think that the solution will look a lot like what we offer with our sort of chassis of human-based full financial planning at a flat fee. How that sort of plays out with what employers are looking for and, and how we sort of interface with employers, I think you know, we have some definitely have some ideas there. I don't want to give anything away, but we're still working through what that looks like. Yeah, it seems like a really interesting market because you get immediate distribution, access to tons and tons of employees. And if you're an employer and it's a race for 
talent right now. That seems like a really creative and innovative addition to a benefits program is we'll give you access to CFPs. It helps you, it helps your families, and it's a differentiator. 100%. Amazing. So right now, who do you say your main competitors are? Is it a robo-advisor type solution like a Betterment or a Wealthfront? Is it the retail network of Schwab and Fidelity? Is it a major wirehouse? Can it be like a local RIA or an independent or maybe all of the above? Yeah, I would say, again, I'd, I'd point back to that stat of that 75% of our clients are brand new to financial services. So they're clearly not finding what they're looking for anywhere else. I think that being said, there are bits and pieces of our model that other folks are doing, but no one has kind of put it together in the same way that we have. So from a kind of mass affluent focus, you can look at like Edelman engines, but they're way more expensive. From a low cost standpoint, you look at Vanguard, but they don't do real financial planning. From a subscription fee standpoint, you can look at XYPN, but they've got a very different business model and they're focused on sort of enabling independent individual advisors. So it's a little bit kind of all over the place. Personal Capital has done a nice job with the more tech-enabled service and kind of virtual advice piece. So it's a little bit all over the place. I mean, the one thing I will say is that the nice thing about this market is that it's so fragmented and it's so big that the largest company by market share is Fidelity. And they have like 10% market share, depending on sort of how you count the their assets. And so there's room for another Fidelity-sized company, and there's still 80% of the market left after that. So I spend very little time thinking about competitors and, and competition, more about how do we just deliver the best service we possibly can to our clients? That, I think, is how you win in the long run, not thinking too much about being responsive to competitive pressures. Right. And at the end of the day, most advisors are doing something very similar than the person next to them. And it's mostly about the relationship, the brand you create, and just executing. So that's a really interesting stat about the about the market share. So I don't want to talk about the pandemic. Everyone's very sick of <laughs> hearing about quarantine and the work from home movement. But your entire workforce has been virtual since the inception of the company. And before recording, you mentioned that you're a bit of a COVID nomad yourself. Can you just walk us through your viewpoint on offices on being in person and maybe how it's changed or hasn't changed at all given the dynamics of the pandemic? Yeah. So when we started the company, one of the core theses was this idea that talent is everywhere. So actually, take a step back. When I was after LiveRamp, when I was doing early stage investing, I started investing outside of Silicon Valley. So I started looking at companies all over the country, again, with this idea that talent's everywhere, innovation is everywhere. There are a lot of emerging tech hubs that aren't getting a huge amount of attention, but that have great startups and great ideas coming from them. And so that's actually what led me to Baltimore. I did three deals in Baltimore, invested in three companies there, and then moved there in 2015, at the end of 2015, kind of sight unseen with the idea that we could create a fintech company there and really take a page out of our own playbook. And so moved to Baltimore in 2015, recruited the founding team, and really kind of put the whole business plan together based on the talent that was available in, in Baltimore. And for the most part, that ended up being a, a great thing for the company. And there's great talent. There was a much lower cost structure. Our money went a lot farther. And we were sort of welcomed with open arms by the larger community there versus coming from San Francisco, where there's like pitchforks in the streets for the, all the tech people. And so... So that was great. But at the same time, we also said, look, we don't want to be beholden to any one geography. 
you know, if you look at some of the headlines in the industry now, like when Vanguard goes to open up a call center, they're very constrained with the local CFP labor force in whatever city they pick. And so we had a headquarters in Baltimore, but then, you know, about 60% of our team was distributed around the country. After the, or when the pandemic hit, we closed our office and now we've been 100% distributed. At this point, we're in 42 different states from an employee standpoint. There isn't really any sort of one center of gravity where it makes sense to open up headquarters again. And I think you know, we took a poll of our employees and said, what do you want to do? And the overwhelming majority was we want to do work from home forever and invest the money that we would spend in an office otherwise to occasional regional get-togethers and one big annual meeting once a year kind of thing. So that's where we're going. And I think that, I don't know, I have a hard time imagining at this point that a client wants to like take time out of their workday and drive into their advisor's office and like deal with parking and sit in person when you can just hop on Zoom and do the exact same thing. So in general, I'm bearish on return to office for most professional services. Very interesting. Yeah, and two follow-ups on that. So one is from a management standpoint, how do you keep the team connected and make sure your vision and your priorities are set across the organization when you don't have access to people in person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, this is another topic that we could do a whole separate podcast on, but being really intentional about recreating the positive elements of the office in a virtual environment. So first of all, the the number one thing that holds a culture together is your mission. And I think if you ask any one of our 300 employees, everyone is very fired up about what we're doing and what our mission is. And so, so I think that, you know, that above all else is what keeps people really tuned into, to the culture and the company and we do a lot of things to reinforce that. We have a Slack channel called Dreams Made Possible, where on a daily basis, advisors are posting about goals that we helped our clients achieve. We have monthly uh, calls that all hands calls where we play call recordings and talk through specific client cases. We do a lot of like really cool surprise and delight stuff for our clients and are very, very public about that internally when it happens. So that's a really key part. And then we have a whole team that's dedicated to creating like virtual events, like recreating the water cooler. And we have a virtual water cooler, which is the persistent a Google Hangout that people can drop into and, and kind of shoot the breeze. And then we have scheduled events around that where I'll drop in for half an hour here and there and, and that sort of thing and other executives as well. So we do a lot around that. And now that it seemed for a moment in time like we were going to be able to go back to in-person stuff, hopefully that that won't get too disrupted. But we're starting to, to get smaller groups together in different cities around the country, embarking on a, on a cross-country whirlwind tour next week to go see folks in, in a bunch of different cities. And we'll keep reinforcing that more and more. Two more questions for you. These will be more forward-looking. The first one, which I've been waiting to ask you, is what's your prediction for this industry? If we had this conversation five years from now, or pick whatever point in time, what does the RIA channel look like? And do you think there's been a meaningful shift to more of the subscription-based fee model that, that, that you all have adapted? 
I think it has to. Anyone in this industry believes in efficient markets, right? <laughs> or hopefully does. And, you know, if you just look at the way that the world is set up right now, like clients are not getting value that's linked to the cost that they're paying. It's just, it's mismatched. And I talked about this a little bit earlier, but the entrenched interests are so deep that it's going to take a force to move this mountain of AUM-based fees. But I think every single day, consumer choice is increasing and transparency is increasing. And eventually, you're just going to have a bunch of people wise up to what's going on and how advisors are charging. And you know, there's going to be a backlash against it. I don't know if that takes five years. I don't. It might take 10 years. But I think it will shift eventually. And I think when it happens, it will happen very quickly. You know, There's that great quote in... The sun also rises where one of the characters asked the other, how did you go broke? And the response was gradually and then suddenly. And I think that we'll probably see a similar dynamic play out in the shift to um, how fees are are charged. I also think there will continue to be a a lot of consolidation. I think that the current sort of state of fragmentation in the market is, is unsustainable because I think that there's just too little differentiation between the services that are being provided. So I would be very long on on consolidation and specialization as well. Very interesting. And last question for you, what's next for Facet? I'm curious to hear about your vision. Yeah, I mean, we're very focused on growth right now. I think we're at a point where we've kind of cracked the code on our service offering. We have very clear product market fit. We have a really strong customer acquisition engine. We're adding close to 200 new clients a week these days. And it's just more fuel on the fire for us. There's a huge market opportunity for us. Like I said, there's about 38 million households and we're at 10,000. That's priority number one. I think the other two would be continued focus on the employer market. I think you'll see more from us there in the coming quarters. And then also thinking about how do we take what we've learned from working with a client for $2,600 a year and condense that down to more kind of bite-sized chunks that we can make available to someone for $250 a year. Because even though there's a big target market of 38 million households out there for a current offering, there's an even bigger market out there of folks who need help in sort of bite-sized bits and pieces. And we know enough now about what works and what doesn't that we can, I think, really leverage that knowledge to help even more people. Yeah, really incredible. This episode, it's so different than really any other one that we've done just because of the way you're building the company. One of my main takeaways from this, aside from just your viewpoints are fascinating, but it's what's possible when you have complete autonomy and independence, when you're not constrained to how you charge, how much you charge, what types of clients to work with, what your technology is. Obviously, it takes a lot and a lot of money to become the next facet, but being able to imagine a future that's way different than what you have now, I think is a pretty cool thought exercise. So thank you so much, Anders, for joining us, sharing your wisdom, and giving us a look into your journey thus far. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a fun conversation. The future is wide open for firms like Facet that think with autonomy, that see a need and build around solving it rather than trying to rebuild from an existing chassis. It will be exciting to see the next chapter in Facet's life cycle, so stay tuned. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the Tools and Resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. 
And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And keep in mind that our services are available without cost to the advisor. Please see our website for more information. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a store rating and a review. That will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.